Um, before we announce uh, the information about your speaker today, Dr. Shaw, for Medical Grand Rounds, um, I wanted to mention a little bit about Bob Simis because we are also, uh, this is also the inaugural uh, Bob Simis Memorial Lecture. Let me see if I can bring this up. Podium PC, I think. Hmm. I just need to get down to this over here. That, okay, there we go. And I need to go to slideshow. I think it's there. There we go. Bob was a member of our faculty for 40 years, and he died June 19th of 2013 after a long illness with mild dysplastic syndrome and leukemia. And we are delighted to remember Bob uh, at this memorial lectureship, one that will continue on as we remember the other faculty members from our department uh, who have passed on, but had such a pronounced effect. He was born in 1938 in Newark, New Jersey. He was the second of a closely knit family of four brothers. Went to Holy Trinity High School, graduated in 1955, went to Rutgers School of Pharmacy. That's right, he was a pharmacist first. And that served him incredibly well as he became an internist and hepatologist and gastroenterologist. He started his practice in pharmacy, but then went to Seton Hall College of Medicine and Dentistry, which later became the New Jersey College of Medicine, which is now part of the Rutgers Medical System. And he graduated in 1965 from medical school. Um, and there he is as a young guy and became quite the strapping man that we knew him to be. As a medical student, he met Sheila Maine. We are delighted that Sheila is here in the audience and with her son, uh, Michael, who is also here, their third son. Um, and I'm not sure if Bob Jr. is here, but he might be on the way. Um, there's their marriage uh, two weeks after he graduated from medical school. And uh, there they are, the loving couple that they were the entire uh, life together. They moved to Boston, and he did his internship in one year of residency at Boston City Hospital during 65 to 67. And there are pictures of him there scared as an intern and then very confident as a resident. <laughs> and part of the fear was that fellow over there, which was Franz Engelfinger. So known commonly as the finger, he was, he was the chief of gastroenterology at the Evans Department of Boston University. And Bob was part of the BU team at Boston City Hospital. And he had to meet up with the finger. And Franz Engelfinger had on his desk a plant and everybody who came in the room was asked, what is that plant? And nobody knew, except Bob knew. And Bob said, that's foxglove. And he said, that's absolutely right, it's digitalis. Now Bob knew that in part maybe because he had been to pharmacy school, but also he was probably a good guesser. But, but also <laughs> he won the favor of Franz, and Franz at that time in 67 became the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. So he had a profound effect on Bob. Not only, I think, his future direction in hepatology, but, but also just academic medicine and what it meant to be a teacher in, in that situation. Off after those two years of training to become a captain in the US Air Force, he was stationed in Columbus, Ohio area for two years. He was called an internist, but he told us that he also served as a psychiatrist, which many of us found somewhat <laughs> ironic. And, and just that, you know, Bob was Bob. And, and uh, to see him being a psychiatrist was interesting, but he was an internist there. 
And uh, he then left that situation and came to Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital to do his senior resident year. And then he became the inaugural GI Fellow in 1970. He was our first GI Fellow. So he did a year of general GI training, and then he went off to Yale to study with Gerald Klatskin, the arrow pointing over to Gerald, who was the premier hepatologist to train with in the country. And he went off to study with him and then came back and joined our faculty in 1972, which at the time was Maury Kelly, Jack McCleary, and Tom Almey. And Tom Almey actually was the first, was the chair of medicine at the time, but he was also a functional bowel person and motility person. Uh, and that was the team, the four of them. He brought hepatology to our medical center, but he also went off when colonoscopy came to America. And you realize it only came 40 some years ago. Uh, it, it came uh, in 1970 when Shinya brought it over from Japan and started training in New York City. And Bob went to learn colonoscopy very early on and in 72 or three brought it here by teaching his colleagues how to do colonoscopy and started the registries which are still in place today here on our campus in Lebanon and also at the VA Medical Center. So his influence will last lifetimes because that registry of screening and surveillance started uh, from Bob. Family time was extremely important to him and to Sheila and to Bob Jr. and Andrew and Michael, their three boys, uh, going from through their lives together, they've, uh, they stayed so tight and close together. He also treasured his time with colleagues and friends and I know that you can't see all the details in here, but he was very close to his colleagues in the division. He was close to Rosalie Salerno, bottom left corner, his secretary, administrative assistant, and Carol Fuller, another one of his assistants. He just treasured the relationships with them, and they took care of him, and he took care of them. They, they had a great relationship. Um, in the middle uh, were the group of five. Once Pete Anderson joined, Tom Almy retired, I came on, it was five of us in the early 1980s, and we were the team for GI, including interventional and hepatology. Uh, and the picture on the right lower corner is when he retired in 2012 from his clinical practice. He was an avid outdoorsman, he did some hunting, but mainly he loved fishing. Here he is with Bob Sharman on the left, who is his real fishing buddy, uh, where they'd go off and do tent camping and go off to the wilds uh, to do all kinds of wonderful fly fishing. He loved being a teacher of students and learners at all levels. He was particularly happy to participate in morbidity and mortality rounds where if you were there, you were fair game. And he taught everyone about clinicianship. His knowledge was encyclopedic. His training at Boston City had served him incredibly well. He was dedicated to his patients and they loved him back. I still run into his patients, I just did the other day, and they talk about Bob. Uh, I was on Main Street in Hanover and. Uh, and they just loved him uh, to no end. In December of 13, Bob was posthumously awarded the Department of Medicine's Chairs Award, presented to a faculty member demonstrating extraordinary engagement in the multiple missions of patient care and academics. And it was truly a wonderful opportunity to be able to remember Bob at that point and to remember him again today as we inaugurate the, the first uh, Bob Simmons Memorial Lecture. So to tell you a little bit about Dr. Shaw, who will give this lecture. Arafa Tour will come uh, to tell us about him. Arafa is, of course, a longstanding hepatologist here in our center, 
a wonderful clinician and teacher. She ran the fellowship program for GI for a great number of years and has had herself a remarkable um, influence on all of our trainees. Arifa. I'm honored today to uh, direct this course um, honoring Bob Simmons, who was my teacher and mentor and one of the fellows he influenced over the years, and he influenced many, many. And as uh, Rich said, he was the consummate clinician, teacher, and truly um, an influence over the 30-plus uh, years that he um, was the uh, and in a way, program director for this fellowship. Um, he was my inspiration to go into hepatology and my inspiration to go into education in uh, uh, medical, uh, in, in uh, the fellowship. Um, so it's my honor to introduce now today our speaker who will be uh, the inaugural Bob Simmons Memorial Lecture. And he, Dr. Shaw is uh, joining us today from uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He has traveled um, a long distance and late night to get here, to be here for us. Um, he uh, finished did all his undergraduate and uh, graduate training at Northwestern. Um, and he uh, did his advanced uh, training and research uh, postdoctoral fellowship at Yale University. He then um, um, followed that by going to Bayo Clinic in Rochester, where he has had NIH-funded um, career in uh, uh, focusing on alcohol-related liver disease, as well as cirrhosis and portal hypertension. He has been pub published in more than 150 peer-reviewed journals, most prestigious journals, and we are incredibly honored to have him here today. Today, he is going to be giving us a talk on alcohol-related liver disease, and, um, and I'm sure you will really enjoy it. Thank you for the introduction, Arifa. Um, it's an honor to be here today, especially for uh, this inaugural Bob Seamus Lectureship. Uh, I had a chance to um, uh, um, learn a little bit about Bob last night, um, and, um, and I realized that, in fact, he and I were both uh, fellows at Yale University. Uh, he preceded me by a few years. He was with um, uh, Gerald Klatskin, uh, who really developed uh, Yale as a, as a prominent liver center that it is. And uh, when I got there, all these um, fellows, these original Klatskin fellows were all iconic. Uh, they were, you know, they had very good company uh, over the years that included Willis Madry, uh, Jim Boyer, um, uh, Joe Bloomer. These were all sort of the legendary people in hepatology. Uh, so he was in very good company with that. And it sounds like he made a remarkable um, transition of what he learned at Yale into really influencing the culture and environment here at Dartmouth. So uh, um, I'm honored to uh, be able to um, lecture on, um, uh, in his name. So uh, today we'll talk about a story. It's an old-fashioned story. And it's a story about uh, one of the longest uh, plagues, or uh, some may view it as a, a uh, innovations of mankind, and that's our story about alcohol and some of the um, uh, ways that alcohol is added to society, but then probably today we'll focus on some of the 
detrimental effects of alcohol. And um, so uh, really uh, the first uh, problems from alcohol consumption, you can see in the histology here, relate to hepatitis and inflammation in the liver. So the first part of the talk, we'll talk a little bit about um, uh, the, the first part of the title, which is drinking like a fish and some of the epidemiology of alcohol and what's going on in that space. And then we'll transition into some of the pathogenesis that leads from drinking to sleeping. And um, we'll talk about pathogenesis, new treatments, and then transplantation as well. And then the second half of the talk, we'll focus a little bit about what's uh, new in the more advanced lesions uh, that occur in response to excess alcohol consumption, which is liver cirrhosis. And then finally, we'll culminate and talk a little bit about portal hypertension. Uh, really, this is the full spectrum of liver disease from early to advanced that can happen in response to alcohol as well as um, other um, uh, liver toxicities. So we'll start with a history of alcohol. So really, probably the first um, mentions of alcohol uh, that we can understand of how it influenced mankind was probably about 10 million BC. Uh, and back then, there's a theory that uh, this may have contributed to the process by which when uh, uh, man was in the trees, came down to the forest. And um, potentially mutations that allowed people, I don't know if they were exactly people then, but <laughs> allowed these folks to uh, get out of the trees and eat all of this fermented uh, fruit that's on the floor of the forest uh, involved these mutations. So folks who had these mutations and were able to uh, metabolize the alcohol and stay alive, they were able to uh, make the transition to the forest floor. So this may have really been uh, when uh, mankind uh, became selective for being able to drink alcohol. And then uh, there were innovations in this process, about 10,000 BC, uh, where Chinese cavemen started to figure this out, and they started uh, using techniques to um, uh, ferment uh, various standard uh, um, foods that they had, such as rice. And then uh, the cavemen made their contribution as well. And there's theories that, in fact, um, alcohol may have stimulated mankind to move from um, a hunter-gatherer uh, type culture into an agrarian culture where they started um, planting uh, um, wheat and other things that they could eventually ferment. And then the medieval period, not a whole lot happened during this time as far as I can tell, except that everything was like so dirty and um, horrific that alcohol was about the, the cleanest thing you could drink. So this did have its downsides as well, because then uh, people drank it too much. And this is when uh, really the gin epidemic uh, came into being. And then we tried a different approach. We just banned it and in the 1940s. Uh, and so this did lead to a reduction in alcohol consumption, reduction in alcohol-related liver diseases, but uh, also resulted in a number of uh, other um, unanticipated uh, consequences, increased violent crime and such. And then finally, we started making uh, great advances here in the 1960s. Charlie Lieber identified that alcohol really is a liver toxin. We take that obviously for granted now, but um, it's funny how history judges uh, and really uh, time tells. And there's many papers during this time where there was really a controversy as to whether alcohol itself was toxic to the liver or not. And then finally, in the 1970s, uh, many iconic uh, individuals, Hal Kahn at Yale University, uh, many others who made major contributions to our understanding now of alcoholic liver disease. So uh, alcohol can do a lot of things. Um, uh, 
can it predict the presidential election? <laughs> so this was a website. This website is now defunct, I have to say. But it tried to predict um, al uh, outcomes of elections based on uh, types of alcohol consumption. And uh, it, it uh, made a um, bold prediction that Hillary uh, Clinton would win uh, the election. Unfortunately, this was a very bitter uh, sort of uh, um, outcome here, and um, I don't know there's, this site's getting many hits anymore. So we, we may enjoy alcohol, but it probably isn't going to allow us to predict the presidential elections. So uh, what are the um, uh, more modern problems relating to alcohol? Well, one of them is binge drinking. And binge drinking is defined as uh, four to five drinks over two hours. Um, I think at Dartmouth, uh, when my daughter was interviewing here and looking around, as I could understand, this was standard drinking. Uh, but uh, apparently this, uh, and the government has a term for this. Um, so uh, there's a number of problems from this, separate just from liver damage, and that uh, relates to social harm, crime, pregnancy. And in fact, uh, the uh, effects, uh, although um, we think of uh, drinking a little bit each day as potentially even beneficial, and that uh, the binge drinking is harmful. There are some theories also that there's probably something in between there where you can, you can give your liver a little bit of a rest from drinking that may be beneficial. And a lot of epidemiologic studies are going on to try to understand if you, uh, how you um, adjust the amount of alcohol you consume over a week and how they may have effects on your liver. But right now, the highest binge drinking is in England. I was just in London a few days ago, and the, the pubs there are just packed all the time, and people drink a lot. <laughs> and I come from Minnesota, which, uh, as I'll show you in the next slide, we're quite proud of our uh, uh, ability to drink. We're number five here. And I was surprised, that I, a little bit disappointed, that um, New Hampshire didn't make the list. Uh, but, you know, you have something to aspire to. But you can see that the Midwest here, we're doing pretty well. Uh, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa. This is like the Big Ten schools here. And so, um, uh, so these, this is a little bit about binge drinking. So what's the, the next problems we have? This is one of them. This is called powdered alcohol. So you can imagine if you can't take something onto the plane with you because it's too much liquid, um, I'm not sure they're going to be checking for powders. Um, so this can be dissolved into liquid or snorted, and it basically gives you an alcohol um, buzz from that. Uh, so hopefully these regulations, uh, the government, some people don't trust the government, but if the government can do something here, this would be probably a good thing. So um, I think I missed one there. Previous. So uh, one of the um, ways that we can try to counteract the adverse effects of alcohol is through another diuretic. But as some of you maybe at a certain age in life realize, too many diuretics at once uh, has, has its own problems as well. But nonetheless, co um, coffee can probably help offset some of the detrimental effects of alcohol. A number of studies, some of them from our group, uh, through consortia, there's a lot of research on alcohol. I'll, I'll talk a little later about that. But that research has allowed us to do much bigger, larger studies to look at uh, some of the epidemiology of alcoholic liver disease and some of the um, uh, things that might help. So it's, it's becoming more clear that regular coffee consumption can confer benefit in reducing the likelihood of alcoholic liver disease and alcoholic hepatitis in individuals who drink too much. So, um, uh, but how much coffee do you have to drink? <laughs> okay, so this is Winston Dunn. He's one of my trainees. Um, he uh, is at Kansas now, just received his uh, first NIH grant. Um, so uh, Winston looked at um, the amounts of alcohol that you consume and the relative risk of problems from that. He was able to show that 
um, and it's through analyzing a number of data sets, some of the references are here, that the relative risk of developing problems from alcohol comes even after two or three drinks a day. And you can see the relative risk about two-fold increase. And then if you're going uh, heavy duty, you can see you really start, um, for men, uh, seven-fold increased risk. Um, and uh, uh, so, so you, you're starting to get problems there. So you can reduce the risk with coffee, but you can start to calculate how much coffee you're really going to have to drink to start to reduce the risk of uh, alcohol-related liver problems if you're a heavy drinker. So um, uh, if you're drinking more than four drinks a day, um, you're going to need that whole vat out there, uh, theoretically, to um, reduce your risk of um, cirrhosis. So ultimately, you really um, want to stay within safe levels of alcohol consumption, which for um, women is really after more than one drink a day, you increase your relative risk of liver problems. And for men, after greater than two, two drinks per day, and that's shown here uh, on the top part of this slide. So um, now people are also coming up with uh, innovative products to try to reduce the toxicity of alcohol right within the, the same bottle. Uh, this is a product that I found online. Uh, as, uh, it has a beautiful name and nice marketing, Bellion. Um, but uh, theoretically, it contains some uh, antioxidants that are from licorice root um, and may have an antioxidant effect. Uh, but keep in mind that these kind of products, if we can avoid the liver-related problems from alcohol, that we haven't really escaped because uh, that results in a number of the other adverse effects of alcohol, including uh, uh, drunk driving and, and other variables such as that. So uh, what about clinically? What are some of the things moving from sort of this epidemiology or history of alcohol to some of the clinical variables? Well, we've spent some energy trying to identify models and little uh, um, uh, cute nomograms that really can help us at the bedside. And this is one of them. This was meant to be developed to help us understand uh, in individuals who we can't really get an accurate alcohol history, um, whether they may have problems relating to alcohol or um, fatty liver from NASH. And we know that we have this spectrum of disease of alcohol and NASH, and I'm putting them into the same spectrum because, in fact, a lot of the folks who are drinking too much are also overweight. So uh, um, Winston uh, worked to try to uh, develop this nomogram. It's called the ANI. It takes into account variables that uh, can help you predict whether a patient may have ASH or NASH. And uh, um, this is available here at this website. You can't see it too well, but all the Mayo models for liver disease, there's a number of them. Uh, Raleigh's dad was actually probably one of the uh, first to develop some of these for PBC and PSC. Um, and, and so they're all available at the Mayo website. And this is one of them. And for any given patient where you're not really, uh, you're getting a squirrely alcohol history, this can help you uh, with a prediction of whether a patient may have alcohol or um, NASH-related uh, liver problems. We're now working to try to really understand the relationship between the two. As I said, is probably more of an interaction than a one or the other. But this can be very helpful. This is another model that Winston came up with. And uh, this was a, a modification, really. Uh, we know that we have, um, uh, for predicting severity of alcohol-related liver disease, the discriminant function. This was from Willis Madry, again, a Klatskin fellow. And this has been extensively validated, um, the discriminant function over 32. I think most of the interns have this, probably a little cheat sheet on their, uh, in their wallet. I always did. And then once you become a resident, you know you go from internship to residency when you mem uh, memorize this formula, and you don't have to keep it around anymore. 
And uh, so, but this is very useful to understand when to use corticosteroids. Uh, but there's some variables here. Is one is that even when folks have a discriminant function less than 32, they still have a significant risk of death. So uh, it's useful to have models where you can actually uh, get a linear range and know the relative risk of death for any given um, score. And that's where the MELD score is very valuable. Also, the INR is very difficult to use. I, I, well, the, uh, the PT is very difficult because, you know, each hospital has a different PT. I always get questions, should I use the lower value of the control range, the upper value, the middle? The INR just gives you a number, and you can calculate uh, much better. And the, uh, the MELD also has a creatinine in it, when we know creatinine is very important for predicting mortality in liver disease. So uh, again, this calculator is at the website as well, the MELD for predicting mortality in alcoholic hepatitis. So from there, we'll move into a little bit about pathophysiology and what's new in terms of uh, treatment trials for alcoholic hepatitis. So this is a cartoon uh, from one of my colleagues, uh, Yanji Zabo, who's, I guess, you know, down the highway, I guess, from you, sort of. Um, and uh, so this, this cartoon shows some of the pathophysiologic uh, changes that occur uh, in the liver in response to alcohol. So this is first in the normal situation. You have a nice interaction between the intestines and the liver mediated by uh, the microflora and bile acids uh, facilitating a health here. However, in alcohol-related liver disease, we know that there's dramatic changes in two areas within the intestine broadly. One of them is the uh, microbiome. There's changes in the bacteria, in the fungus, and probably in the viruses as well that are living inside of your intestines. The other variable that changes is right here, and this is the permeability. And the permeability is important because that's what allows these folks to get across the intestinal barrier into the portal vein. And once they get into the portal vein, then they're creating problems inside the liver uh, that compounds the effects of alcohol itself. So alcohol has effects on the intestine as well as on the liver cells themselves. The effects on the liver cells in turn stimulate what's called as a sterile necrosis response. And what that means is that your liver acts like there's an infection, even though there's actually not an infection. So you get all the same responses you'll get as an infection. You get the systemic inflammatory response syndrome. You get all these cytokines released. You get um, neutrophils recruited. Uh, you get hepatic stellate cells getting activated. All of this happens, but in fact, there's no infection. So that's where some of these events within the hepatocyte and the response of alcohol is mediating this effect, along with the effects in the intestine itself. So, um, so one of the areas that uh, we're, we've been studying a lot is about how that sterile necrosis response happens. How does the injured hepatocyte um, release things that eventually stimulate this inflammatory response with all the neutrophils on the histology that you see on your liver biopsies? So this uh, brings us to uh, a new customer here. These are called extracellular vesicles. And what, what this cartoon shows is that now it's becoming clear that cells, when they want to talk to each other, they use these vesicles. And they'll package materials into the vesicle that can uh, transmit signals to adjacent cells. And this has been shown now for hepatocytes that are injured, and they want to talk to endothelial cells, for blood cells, uh, and all the different cells in the liver, and how they can talk to each other uh, through these vesicles. In turn, finally, leading even to activation of hepatic stellate cells, which stimulates the fibrosis response. 
So how is this relevant within liver disease? Well, this cartoon shows some work that's been done by ourselves as well as other groups, um, whereby uh, people who drink too much, they um, uh, actually, uh, they start to release more of these vesicles from their um, hepatocytes. So we think that this is from the injury response when the hepatocyte gets stressed by the alcohol, it starts to release these vesicles. And these, this is human data showing that this is true, that there's more vesicles released in individuals who are starting to develop liver damage from alcohol. There's a whole uh, host of different molecules and microRNAs that are in these vesicles, and these in turn stimulate macrophage to get activated. And that's the, one of the first steps in the inflammatory response, since macrophage, once they're activated, can release all of these cytokines that you've heard about, like tumor necrosis factor and others that uh, really lead to the inflammatory response that we see in patients with alcoholic hepatitis. So what about clinically? Um, what are some, what's, what's going on clinically right now? And what's sort of the standard of care? This slide will show us a little bit about what's sort of the current um, standard of care. And then I'll talk a little bit about what are some of the new uh, treatment trials that are ongoing. So we know to make the diagnosis of alcoholic hepatitis, we need um, a, a consistent alcohol history, heavy alcohol use until three weeks uh, prior to onset of symptoms. It should be um, in association with jaundice. Uh, a number of exam findings uh, that you all are familiar with. Keep in mind that the AST, ALT should be not too high. Uh, if it's getting too high, it's probably not alcoholic hepatitis or it's probably a combination with um, uh, Tylenol. Uh, the ratio you're all familiar with, imaging is really just to rule out other causes. And then you can break this either by MELD score or discriminant function to predict severity. Um, and in individuals where the scores are low, you can generally manage them conservatively. Uh, and that includes nutrition, alcohol withdrawal, and um, uh, managing complications as they arise. The individuals who have a higher score, you really want to see if there's any contraindications to steroids. If there are no contraindications to steroids, um, then that's reasonable to use steroids, and I'll show you some of that data. If there are contraindications to steroids, uh, I'd say this part of the algorithm now is uh, changing. There's studies I'll show you that show that pentoxifiline probably really doesn't have any benefit. If you do use corticosteroids, keep in mind this is very important. After one week of using corticosteroids, it's very important to recheck the bilirubin. Um, and if the bilirubin is not improving, you should stop the corticosteroids because those are individuals who are likely not going to benefit from corticosteroids. And in fact, they'll only get the harm of corticosteroids. <coughs> There's also now more data about steroid non-responders and liver transplant, and we'll, I'll show you that. So this was a large trial. This is a massive study. You're uh, probably familiar with this. This is a STAPA trial. And 1,000 patients were randomized to steroids or pentoxy or placebo. And what this showed essentially was that there was no significant difference of any of the treatment arms compared to each other. So relatively disappointing. Prednisone uh, could not have a statistical beneficial effect compared to no prednisone. Uh, at one month, there was a trend for benefit, um, but it wasn't statistically significant. Uh, pentoxy had no benefit. And really, you can see all the curves are interchangeable. So this really um, uh, puts into question if there's really even a beneficial effect of pentoxy. I know, of, um, well, certainly this shows there's no beneficial effect of pentoxy. Maybe beneficial effect of prednisone, but it's small and only at one month. So this is sort of a double knockout of everything we were doing. 
Uh, we also uh, looked into this. this the, that study was included in this massive network meta-analysis that we did. Uh, and in that, uh, this, besides all these nice colors and circles, essentially what this does is allows you to compare all the groups of all the trials in a network meta-analysis. So that allows much more nuanced and sophisticated comparisons of all those patients and treatment arms amongst all the studies. And in summary, what this showed uh, was just what I told you earlier, that uh, Pentoxy, really low-quality evidence. I, I wouldn't recommend using it at this point anymore. Steroids, there's moderate quality evidence that it may benefit short-term mortality. That's only 30 days. After 30 days, there's no benefit of steroids. And um, so, so that's really where it left us, that probably steroids may help you at one month, uh, but not after that, and the benefit is quite small. So that really stimulates the need for clinical trials, which I'll show you uh, some of the trials that are ongoing. This is now funded by the government in a big way, a lot of investment now in alcoholic hepatitis and alcoholic liver disease. And I'll show you some of the treatments that focus on the intestines and the lesions I showed you earlier that are going wrong in the intestines, as well as some of the treatments we have now or are testing for the injury response that I showed you in the liver, the impaired regeneration, and then also inflammation that was also in the liver that I showed you in the earlier cartoon. So uh, we talked about how uh, the change in the microbiome and this permeability allows uh, contents to get into the liver and, and compound the effects of alcohol in the liver. And a lot of this is through LPS or endotoxin. And so you can imagine that treatments to try to block endotoxin uh, might be effective, and indeed that's going on. And one of the trials that we're involved in is sort of an LPS neutralizing agent to see if it can be beneficial. This is another one. This is interleukin-22. I know there's a lot of interleukins. It's hard to keep track of all of them. But nonetheless, this is an important one. This is, the reason that this is important is that it's produced by blood cells, but it acts on epithelial cells like the hepatocyte. So in theory, uh, the blood cells don't have the receptor for interleukin-22. It shouldn't disturb their function, and therefore it shouldn't have this infectious effect that many of our current treatments have where they predispose towards infection like corticosteroids. So there's uh, trials going on in graft-versus-host disease, and we have trials that we're actively recruiting in alcoholic hepatitis as well for this interleukin-22, which can uh, heal the hepatocytes that are injured by alcohol and also reduce the fibrogenic effects um, on the hepatic stellate cell. And then finally, another vignette I'll show you. There's other trials ongoing, but I'm not going to go through all of them. But this is uh, anakinra, and you may be familiar with that in rheumatology. <laughs> And what this does is it blocks that um, sterile necrosis response that I mentioned earlier, whereby the hepatocyte that's injured releases vesicles and releases molecules that stimulate white blood cell recruitment and hepatic stellate cell activation. And so anakinra can block this, and uh, thereby uh, trials are ongoing to see if we can uh, reduce alcohol injury using anakinra. <laughs> So what about liver transplantation? Uh, we obviously don't have enough organs to transplant everybody who has their hand up, and that's the 800-pound gorilla uh, that, um, you know, there's a limited number of organs. But nonetheless, this is getting a lot of uh, publicity and a lot of emphasis lately is transplant for alcoholic hepatitis. This was the seminal study from France showing a tremendous beneficial effect in survival for patients who are steroid non-responders who are transplanted uh, as compared to individuals who... Um, uh, don't receive a liver transplantation and are steroid non-responders. 
So this has been now reproduced in America in Mount Sinai, much smaller scale, very small study, but nonetheless showing um, using the same protocol massive beneficial effects for patients who get an early transplant. Um, however, we do have some problems here. There's smaller studies. This is from Hopkins. They're doing a lot of work here. They also could show that uh, basically survivals were similar in alcoholic cirrhosis as well as alcoholic hepatitis. But um, what they showed was also was that uh, when patients with alcoholic hepatitis, if they had recidivism and went back to drinking, the um, sort of adverse effects were quite catastrophic uh, compared to individuals who had longer-term abstinence. And so that, that's really what they showed here, severe recidivism outcomes in alcoholic hepatitis. So this is sort of a trying to be balanced. Should we transplant patients with alcoholic hepatitis? Well, um, the transplant's clearly effective. Um, it, it does benefit patients. Um, but um, uh, one concern is maybe some of these patients would actually recover without the transplant, and that's part of the reason that we wait a little bit before we do the transplant. Uh, so we really need better measures of who's going to recover on their own versus who will not. Uh, relapse uh, can be problematic. Uh, we know the numbers are probably similar, about 20%, but it may be that the patients with shorter-term duration of abstinence will have more severe relapse in terms of how much they start to drink again. And then, of course, there's societal and logistical issues about this, and um, we can get into this, but you can imagine different reasonable people may have different opinions about this. Uh, so in general, I think that there's a very small percentage of the total population of patients with this disease that are uh, ideal for such an aggressive approach, uh, but uh, this is certainly gaining momentum right now. So that's sort of, sort of the story of uh, alcohol. Now we'll move on to the more advanced lesions of cirrhosis and uh, portal hypertension over the next about uh, 10 minutes. So we'll talk a little bit about the pathogenesis of cirrhosis, um, some of the new things going on. So this is a slide that really shows the pathways by which uh, cirrhosis occurs. You have these different types of epithelial cells, hepatocytes, cholangiocytes, and their interaction with stellate cells, Kupfer cells, and endothelial cells. And if you think, well, these cells, you don't need to know them. One of the questions on my board exam when I uh, took my original GI boards is which cell uh, is responsible for fibrosis in the liver. And um, so if you learn one thing from this talk, Remember, it's this blue cell, okay, the hepatic stellate cell. That's the one responsible for fibrosis in the liver. And that cell, what it does is it makes matrix, it contracts, um, it squeezes the sinusoids, and that's one of the important targets now for fibrosis resolution is how you can deactivate the cell, how you can kill the cell, or how you can uh, have it go into senescence. So this is uh, one of the technologies we've been working on a lot uh, is MR elastography. This is just like fiber scan. I mean, the same technology, but it has certain advantages over fiber scan in that uh, individuals who are obese, we have a lot of obesity in Minnesota. Uh, it, this works better for those individuals. And additionally, probably the accuracy of the test itself is better than fiber scan. That being said, it is a more expensive test right now. And it's not, I, I don't know if it's available here, but it's not widely available through every center right now. So uh, um, this is some of the work we're doing to see if we can use fiber scan or use um, what we call as a hepatogram or a modified MRE to not just look for fibrosis, but to look for all the histologic features that you might see in conditions such as alcoholic hepatitis. And so this is Meng Yin and Alina Allen, a couple of my uh, mentees who are working in this area. 
And they've done a lot of work in animal models and trials now. Uh, Lena will present at the next liver meeting about how uh, this test can detect not just fibrosis, but also inflammation using some uh, cutouts and features of the imaging to really start to help us get a, uh, like a virtual liver biopsy through this test. So what's in the pipeline for treatments? Um, well, we have um, a lot of different drugs that are undergoing evaluation to target these uh, inflammatory cells that come both from the tissue as well as from the um, blood cell, uh, from the um, vasculature, and that can reverse that scarred liver. So one of them is an inhibitor of uh, chemokines uh, that can block inflammation, uh, inhibitors of this glycocalyx uh, that kind of covers the cells and stimulates the scar formation, um, agonists of um, protective pathways and hepatocytes and um, deactivating stellate cells, uh, inhibitors of all this matrix cross-linking. So a number of those different trials are ongoing, and you're probably seeing some of them in the literature. There's a lot of work on the relationship of blood vessels and fibrosis. We've worked a lot on uh, a molecule called VEGF, and it certain, turns out that a lot of important molecules have beneficial effects, like we showed with VEGF, where it can improve uh, fibrosis or resolve fibrosis. But in fact, um, uh, VEGF also has important effects for um, uh, um, both fibrogenesis as well as fibrosis resolution. So it really gets to this issue that uh, blocking these important molecules can get very difficult. And we learned that with TNF as well in you know, the trials that we did with TNF inhibitors and alcoholic hepatitis. I want to highlight a couple of um, uh, studies done by a couple of trainees. One of them who's here is Mary Drenane. Uh, Mary worked with her partner in crime, Jess Myers, in our lab for a long time, and they studied a number of the molecular pathways that are involved in how hepatic stellate cells get activated. I won't go into detail in the studies. I'll just show you a couple cartoons whereby they focused a lot on um, very important kinases that are involved in this pathway. So Jess had the fortune to study a molecule with a fun name, Tango, and uh, so th um, that molecule she showed was involved in the process by which um, uh, um, ER stress or oxidative stress can stimulate a molecule that's called Tango that can kind of act as a chaperone or an escort uh, to get collagen out of the cell. And therefore, in turn, she showed that if you block this molecule, you uh, block collagen secretion, and you get an added effect that if the collagen gets retained in this endoplasmic reticulum, the hepatic stellate cell dies. So she showed a lot of beneficial effects to block Tango. Mary, unfortunately, had a very boring name to her protein. It was called Synectin or um, GIPC. GIPC was even more boring than Synectin. So we, we use Synectin here. But in seriousness, this is a very important paper that um, uh, will come out soon. That, um, and Mary was able to show that this protein regulates a number of kinases that are very important for hepatic stellate cell activation, including both PDGF receptor alpha as well as PDGF receptor beta. And she went into great detail about the mechanisms by which this effect occurs and how you can basically um, uh, um, show that synectin is involved in the process by which stellate cells are activated and could be an important target for um, blocking stellate cell activation. So uh, this is sort of the holy grail in liver disease, is how we can um, uh, get the um, injured liver to regenerate as opposed to have this fibrotic response. And the, we think that some of the things in endothelial cells are quite important for this as well. So uh, in the last couple minutes here, I'm going to talk 
about what's new in portal hypertension, which is the last syndrome or um, advanced process after liver cirrhosis. And so the process here, we know we have fibrosis. This leads to distortions in the architecture of the liver and changes in the blood vessels. Um, this is, uh, um, whoops. There it is. This is shown here in a cartoon showing some of the uh, pretty changes in the blood vessels. We don't know if it really looks like this, but this is a nice picture. Um, but really what happens is that um, you're going to get constriction of the um, sinusoids, and that leads to increased resistance, and um, uh, that contributes to the increase in uh, portal pressure that we see in patients. And this is a cartoon that shows some of these changes and where therapies can be targeted. It's important to note that most of the therapies are actually targeted towards the splanchnic circulation. That's where you see drugs that you know, beta blockers, uh, vasopressin analogs, um, somatostatin analogs, and this reduces the amount of blood flow coming into the gut. So when you have high portal pressure, that's not just from the high resistance that I mentioned, but also increased flow coming into the intestines. So that's where a lot of our therapies are currently targeted. A drug carvedilol may have the dual beneficial effect of working both uh, to reduce increased resistance in the liver and to reduce the blood flow coming into the um, intestines. So um, one of the um, important targets here, nitric oxide, which vasodilates these sinusoids, um, and this, this is lacking in liver um, cirrhosis. So a number of therapies now, the statins, are probably the most important that are evolving as potential therapies, as well as obeticolic acid, uh, which uh, Denise will talk about later as well in terms of some of its effects in other diseases. So statins probably have effects on multiple cells, uh, but ultimately what they're able to do is stimulate nitric oxide production in the liver sinusoids. And this is a study that shows this, that you can reduce intrahepatic resistance with statins in humans. And this has now also been followed up with a clinical trial showing that statins improve survival from variceal bleeding, although ironically they didn't actually affect the re-bleeding, but they did improve survival. So this is ongoing now to understand how, how this is happening. And um, uh, I, I show this, and for the interest of time here, I'm going to uh, skip uh, too much detail about how statins are working, except just to say that they're probably working on multiple cell types. This probably doesn't have much to do with its cholesterol reduction. It's more a cell signaling effect of how statins are beneficial. And finally, uh, obeticolic acid. Um, uh, this is based on data from the FXR receptor, which was uh, cloned about 20 years ago and identified as the receptor for bile acids and has now become quite a hot target uh, for drug therapy. And um, a number of studies showing that obeticolic acid can reduce portal pressure. The challenge is now, you may be aware, a lot of um, um, uh, negative issues coming up with patients with advanced fibrosis or high MELD scores and that obeticolic acid needs severe dose reductions because it's going to be toxic in patients with more advanced liver disease. So more to come on that. So that's sort of our old-fashioned story here. We learned, learned a little bit about alcohol, its effects on the liver. We learned a little bit that if you drink like a fish, you better drink a lot of coffee. Um, we learned about uh, some of the pathogenesis uh, by which you end up sleeping with the fish if you drink like a fish and some of the different treatment options that are emerging. And then in uh, cirrhosis, we learned about um, new diagnostic therapies, such as uh, MRE, 
that maybe could obviate liver biopsy, uh, new treatment trials, and then portal hypertension, which really highlights it. And for me as a postdoc, I studied nitric oxide. I spent a lot of time, you know, doing very esoteric things with it and wondering if it would ever be important. So it's kind of fun. It's, it's demoralizing in a way. It takes 20 years to really get something to therapy. But on the other hand, if you can live long enough, sometimes important things will, uh, you'll get to see them uh, really impact patients, hopefully, um, for the research and translation cycle that's so important for um, what we do. And so finally, I want to thank all of the folks who uh, have helped me through the years, uh, some of my trainees. I don't have a picture of Mary here, but I have her partner in crime, Harry, who's down in uh, Florida now, and a number of my um, important mentors who have helped me uh, through the years, Patrick Kamath, Nick LaRusso, Greg Gores, Keith Linder, David Alquist, Gianrico Ferrugia, many others. So, and I want to thank you all. And again, I'm honored to be here uh, um, for this lectureship. And um, uh, thank you again. We have a few minutes for questions, if uh, anyone has a question. Yeah. Uh, I was struck by your diagram and your comments on microbial diversity yeah. and also permeability of mucosa and how it interacts with the pathogenesis of alcoholic hepatitis and hepatology are like, all of us, I think, in gastroenterology and all mm. disciplines now focusing on that area because we study a lot. Um, I just was curious, you know, about your thoughts on other common causes of permeability and changes in microbial, microbial diversity, especially specifically drugs, non mm -hmm. medications, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. pump inhibitors, the things commonly yeah. used, yeah. people who drink, yeah. and all of us, yeah. frankly. Do you, do you have any information yeah. on how that changes yeah. the physiology of alcohol I think probably the vignette that's most relevant from your question is uh, proton pump inhibitors. There's some important literature from Bern Schnabel now at San Diego showing that uh, PPIs uh, probably um, uh, uh, make things worse uh, because they're changing the um, bacterial flora. And he's shown epidemiology studies as well as uh, studies in animal models showing that um, the changes in the gut flora uh, could be detrimental in the um, in this process. But I think everything you said is probably going to be true uh, in terms of these things changing the gut flora and that having important effects. We're just uh, just barely at the tip of the iceberg with this, though, to understand which are the quote good bacteria, bad bacteria, and it's likely not going to be that simple to say good ones and bad ones, and then how all the different other things that are living in the intestines uh, are affecting the um, uh, effects on the liver, again, through uh, what comes in through the increased permeability to the liver. So I think that's going to be a lot of data coming out on that. Yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit to milk thistle and mm -hmm. what's going on with that treatment? Yeah. So uh, milk thistle, there's some uh, lower quality evidence of potential beneficial effects through antioxidants. Uh, but it really hasn't elevated to the level that we prescribe it as a therapy. And then, as you're aware, you know, um, all of these uh, drugs that are not regulated, it's very hard to know which uh, formulations may help, which uh, manufacturers are making it properly. Vitamin E is an example. Like for um, NASH, there's trials showing beneficial effects of vitamin E, but we also know that there's different isomers of vitamin E, and some are good, and some may actually be detrimental. So it becomes very challenging unless you have a properly monitored and formulated product that's consistent uh, to be able to prescribe it to patients. 
quick follow-up on, on your yeah. the microbiome yeah. question. I was thinking about that, uh, with the gut flora and the increased permeability of the gut, sort of the initiating factor of alcoholic hepatitis, that there aren't more trials looking at perhaps antibiotics for treating mm -hmm. acute alcoholic mm -hmm. hepatitis. Do you think it's just mm -hmm. too late? To uh, about that, no, I think it's a great idea. And there's a massive study in France going on uh, studying Augmentin. Uh, does anyone wonder if Augmentin is the right drug? Yeah, drugmentin can cause a cholestatic hepatitis, but um, they're looking exactly at what you said. So whether uh, antibiotics could be beneficial, the challenge is that, as you know, in these sick patients, sometimes you give antibiotics and you predispose towards fungal infections, and often that's really what um, leads to the patient's demise. So uh, we'll have to see the trial results. Yeah. So recidivism is one of the biggest issues, mm -hmm. and you pointed out that people can go through mm -hmm. transplantation, but the recidivism will... Mm -hmm. First part of this is, is there differences in those who've gone through liver transplant in terms of their recidivism rate? Does that experience mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. having a new liver put in mm -hmm. change that? Mm -hmm. And secondly, we all struggle with what we do about mm -hmm. recidivism. Mm -hmm. It's such an mm -hmm. issue, and yet yeah. there's no mm -hmm. remarkable cure yeah. for yeah. having people mm -hmm. not go back. Yeah. So in response to the first part of the question, liver transplantation is probably one of the best treatments for recidivism, but it's obviously not a um, very logical treatment. Um, but folks who have had a liver transplantation, their risk of recidivism is much lower. I mean, you'd see the numbers, 20%. It seems horrible that 20% people go back to drinking, but that's tremendously lower than what you might see. And obviously, there's selection bias in that and all. But the short answer to that question is, yes, it's self-selection in part, but folks who have had a liver transplant do drink less than folks who haven't. Um, the second part of your question is very important. I think as hepatologists and primary internists, it's very important for us to start to uh, um, make addiction part of our business. There's a lot of challenges. You know, I, I, you all know these patients. You know, you can see it. You see the spouse with the patient, and you know this is going to turn into a 60-minute visit if you ask one probing question. And, and are, are you going to ask the question, or are you going to say, I got five other patients waiting? But we're going to have to get into this because none of the medical treatments are going to affect more than one month's survival. And we really, what we're looking for eventually is these stage trials where we can use a medical therapy early and then transition perhaps through innovative drug trials to recidivism uh, treatments. There's actually three drugs that are approved by the FDA for um, alcohol addiction. It's just that the safety profile of these drugs in liver disease isn't fully established, and most of us are nervous to use them. Uh, but I think we have to get there and work with our addiction colleagues to start to feel comfortable using these drugs, especially in patients with earlier liver problems before they're cirrhotic, where they should be safe still. Thank you, Dr. I'd like to present you for uh, giving us this lecture for the Bob Simmons Memorial okay. Lecture. And we're very grateful that you have come. Thank you very much.